Hi, I'm Susie Quattro. I've been around for a long, long time, been a successful artist for 59 years now. And tonight I'm going to be talking to a very nice guy and a fellow bass player, Robert Miller, and follow your dream. And that's what you should do. Follow your dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Ann Phillips, a triple threat lady. She's had a career spanning pop music, jazz, and commercials. She's a singer, a songwriter, an arranger, and a producer. She's worked with Burt Bacharach, Carol King, Mahalia Jackson, and Ray Charles, just to name a few. In commercials, perhaps her most famous one is the Pepsi campaign in the 1960s called The Taste That Beats the Others Cold. Pepsi Pours It On, that featured the Turtles, the Four Tops, and others. And in the middle of this episode, as I like to do with all my musician guests, Anne and I are going to do a song fest, where I've asked her to pick out a handful of her best works, and we're going to play a little bit and talk about it. You'll get the backstories, and nobody does this in podcasts except for this podcast. And as you know, I like to feature one of my songs in each episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen the song that I wrote called Hey Jake from the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this one? Well, Anne made her mark in the 1960s, and Hey Jake, is my ode to the 1960s. It's a 60s song through and through, so I thought it fit. So, Ann Phillips, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Great to be here. So, Ann Phillips is one of the few people that has contacted me and introduced herself and asked if she could be a guest on the show. I get contacted a fair amount but so many people really are not right for the show. But once I heard your background and I saw all the great things that you did in the music industry, I said, I have to have this lady on the show. Thank you. So I'm so glad you did it. So am I. So you've been in the music business a long time. You've worked with so many stars, as I mentioned in the introduction. How did you get into music? Was that you know, your dream from the very beginning? I think I came out of the womb playing piano and singing. <laughs> I wish I could have done that. I had to take lessons. <laughs> <laughs> now, it was funny. I had a boyfriend uh, when I was just about to go to college, and I was at a party somewhere, and this man that um, produced a show in Philadelphia so was there, and I played and sang, and he came over to me and said, what are you planning to do? And I said, I plan to be a singer. And my boyfriend said, you're not serious, are you? That was the end of that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a tough career. Even now, it's such a tough career. Everybody, you know, talks about the big stars, but that's, you know, 0.001% of the people out there, right? 
That's right. That's right. So how did you get into the career of music? Well, I, I went to Oberlin College, and then I went to uh, New England Conservatory. I didn't learn what I know now at either of those places. <laughs> Really? And then I came to New York and I was 19 and I, because I could play piano and sing, I could work. I never had to wait a table. And so I got jobs in luscious places and dives. <laughs> and then somebody told me about uh, doing demos for songwriters. And I made a little demo at the end of Chicks and Gets and Be Spared a Scurry. I went up high at the end and I got a call. I took it to the couple of studios that did demos for songwriters. And uh, they, I got a call immediately. And the first demo I did was for Jack Keller and Howie Greenfield, who were two of the new writers that Alden Music had signed. Now, Alden Music was Al Nevins and Don Kirshner. And they were wise enough, first of all, to recognize the kids that were writing the new music, because this was all in Great American Songbook days. We're talking about late 50s and stuff. And this was the Brill building that everybody was located in, I assume? Uh, Alden wasn't in the Brill. They were in 1650 Broadway, which was uh, a Warren. I mean, yeah. And, and they had a publishing company and they signed all of these new young people like Tony Orlando, like Carol King and Jerry Goffin and Ellie Greenwich and her husband and uh, Cynthia Noquil. And, you know, I mean, it just was on and on. And so those were the demos that I was doing right away. Isn't it remarkable that you're talking about, you know, the greatest songwriters of a generation and, you know, Kirshner and, and his company were able to figure out to sign them. I mean, yes. they could have signed anybody. That's right. All right. So you're with Don Kirshner, who everybody in the music business knows. And then he was on television later with Don Kirshner's rock concert. I think that was. But. He was in the business, the publishing business, and he signed all these great writers. So tell me, how did you fit in with that? Were you working with the Carol Kings of the of the world at that time? No, I was doing I was a jazz player, jazz piano and singing. And that was how actually I did mainly background, but some foreground and stuff. Carol did all her foregrounds. I did on uh, It Might As Well Rain Until September. I'm all the background parts. That got released as a, uh, as a final. All right. But I need to understand this. So Carol King is writing, and she's doing demos of what she's writing, and you're participating in those demos? Is that it? Yep. There, there were always background singers in those. And so I was doing mostly for Alden music for all of those writers, uh, like Ellie Greenwich and Carol and so forth. We're doing that. I was doing background stuff, but I had, you know, every day, uh, at least two or three demo sessions at uh, the little studio associated where most of the demos were done. And were the demos just, uh, you know, piano and voice or were they full orchestrations or what? Piano, voice, guitar, uh, drums, always. Okay. And did Alden have their own studio, or you had to go somewhere else for this? There were two or three little studios that most of these demos were done. And the people that were engineering there, one of them was Brooks Arthur. Do you know who Brooks? Yes, I do know Brooks Arthur. I just saw him last year. I was in California. We met up. And um, 
I could go on with that. But nevertheless, those studios were where most of the demos were done. And there were certain people that did things for, I mean, there was a guy that did most of the Johnny Mathis things and, you know, but those were demos. The interesting thing that happened with uh, Al and Don with Alden Music was they found out what sessions were coming up and who was looking for material. And so they would have their writers write for that Connie Francis or whoever it was was coming up. And so they got more tunes on sessions than anybody else. And those demos went from the demo session that we would do to the artist, the publisher, whatever, that was looking for material. And so all the music just was getting uh, songs on everything. You know, it's an interesting time that you're talking about, because this is before what I'll call the singer-songwriter era. Yes. Where people were writing their own material, recording their own material. This is the era when, as you said, artists and their record labels were looking for material. So this is how you got your material in front of those artists. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. No, if you read Carol King's book, there's a whole time where it stopped for the songwriters because the singer songwriters were writing their own stuff. And those were the people that were getting recorded. And so there was real dip that happened after this little short period you know, that uh, like leader of the pack and all of that is uh, we're, we're done. All of those great songs with uh, Carol and Jerry. And well, this whole early 60s period, which I still think was one of the greatest periods in rock. OK, those songs have stood the test of time. Everybody knows them. Everybody smiles. Everybody dances to them. And of course, it was followed by, you know, the British invasion era and all of that. But the amount of talent that was in those rooms that you're describing, you know, from the players to the, the songwriters to the singers, just remarkable that it was all accumulated in one place. Yes. Yeah. And it was fantastic. It, and I think I read a wonderful interview with Ellie Greenwich once, and she said it was like a mom and pop business. And it was. It was before corporate world came into it. And or anything like today's algorithms and would tell you what a hit they are. <laughs> you know, I love there's a story. Uh, Phil Spector, of course, was one of the great producers in that era. I did a couple of sessions with him. I was going to ask if you did. I'm sure you did. Was he was he as nutty as they say back then? Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. What I remember about him is these pants that he had that had a little fill uh, in red thread inscribed on his <laughs> Really? <laughs> you know, what I was getting to is that at that time, what did the kids listen to music on? It was transistor radios. So in essence, when he did his records, the wall of sound, all the great groups and, and artists that he recorded, he'd listen back, not on those big studio monitors where everything sounds great, but on a little transistor radio-like type of instrument, because that's the way the kids were going to hear it. That's what they did before him at Associated. When we would finish a demo, we would listen to it back through a little white plastic radio. Because that was before transistors, and they would say that's how they're going to hear them. I just think it makes so much sense. Nowadays, when I record, you know, we go into the studio, we've got million-dollar equipment and all of that, and it's great. Everything always sounds wonderful on the big studio speakers and everything. But I always say to the engineer, email me the, the link, and I want to listen to it 
on my iPhone with my ear pods. And he says, well, why would you want to do that? It doesn't sound as good. I said, because that's the way people are going to listen to it. I want to hear it the way they're going to hear it. Absolutely. I always wished when Associated had closed. And actually, they called me and said, look, we've got a lot of things behind the wall where they stored stuff. And actually, my son went with me and he got some incredible demo things of various people. But I always wished I could have walked out with that little white plastic radio. <laughs> yeah, it's probably in the Museum of Broadcasting or something Should like be. that. <laughs> I can imagine. Okay, so you're you're 19 or, or you know early 20s. You're you're doing these demos for Don Kirshner. You're meeting people like Carol King and Ellie Greenwich. Where'd you go from there? I just have to tell you one quick story about Ellie. Is that years later they did a show on Leader of the Pack, and they first did it downtown. And I took my kids. Now they were early teens by then, and I introduced them to Ellie afterwards. And she looked up and, and said, I am your prenatal influence. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was pregnant all that time, too. <laughs> she was right, I'm sure. Yes, she was. So tell me, what did you do after that? That was that era. Well, from then it went to record dates because the wonderful thing was because I did those demos, I didn't come from the rock around the clock world, but I learned it. I learned the early rock influence by doing all those demos. And the people that were the background singers, because there were record dates every day, which was wonderful with the whole, everybody there, you know, the full orchestra and so forth and great arrangers. But I knew that feel. And so the arrangers started calling me to get the singers that could get that feel. And so I knew the singers that could read music because you had to read on these sessions, but I told them not to listen to WNEW anymore. That was the Frank Sinatra, you know, great American song station and turn that off and listen to Scott and Brucey. Exactly. And I heard Brucey the other night and Scott Muni played a big part in my life uh, with getting to Pepsi and so forth. That's a whole oh, story. Oh, I want to hear that. Well, you know, <laughs> Cousin Brucey was my first guest on the podcast. Oh, really? He and I go back about uh, 30 years together. And uh, I, he was my first guest. And then recently I replayed, I rebroadcast his episode because as the first guest, I didn't have that many you know, listeners at that time. Right. And he, he's, he was just a wonderful guest and he's a wonderful guy. And you know, to me, he represents 60s rock and roll, particularly on the radio. Yes. And then, you know, Scott Munich was on WABC with him. And then he went off into the land of FM radio, which was brand new in the mid 60s. WNEW FM in New York. So tell me your Scott Muni story. Well, Scott's brother <laughs> came to see I was playing uh, piano and singing with my husband, who was a bass player and a drummer out in New Jersey. And Scott's brother came into this club one night and he said, you should meet my brother. So he fixed it up that we would meet Scott. Well, it just happened that it was right the night after Cassius Clay won the... Uh, the heavyweight championship? Yeah. The original name of Muhammad Ali, for anybody oh, right. that doesn't know. <laughs> right. So I wrote this quick spot saying down Nashville, was it Nashville, Memphis Way? We've, they've got Cassius Clay. So what so? We've got Scott so. 
and took it into Scott and he loves it and put it right on the air. And then he said, you can write that kind of music. I have a friend at BBDNO, Hillary Lipsitz, who is dying to get this kind of music into the commercials there because the older people there said, ah, for a couple of teen products, but not across the board. And um, that was our introduction to BBDO and the people that had the uh, Pepsi spot. Actually, it was Hillary that had the Pepsi account there. And so I did Come Alive, You're in the Pepsi Generation. In the style, first of a demo with my people, and then we did it real with the Hondells and the Four Tops and Martha and the Vandellas. And come alive, you're in the Pepsi, but a whole different version, not the swinging version that Joni Summers sang, just a whole different rock kind of version. Let me stop you for a moment, because for people that are not of the same era that we're talking about, <laughs> yes. it's hard to imagine that the advertising industry, as you said, was not interested in, in the rock music of the day. They had to be brought along kicking and screaming because it was all new for them. And BBD&O was, was or still is one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world. Nowadays, of course, they're using songs by the Rolling Stones and everybody else in all of the commercials. But back then, it wasn't like that. So you were breaking ground. Hillary said he got on his knees over at BBDO and said, please, before Coke does it, let us do it. It's so important. And that's how I got into the whole Pepsi thing. And then the next uh, campaign was a year or so later, and they didn't have, uh, well, they went to just the four people that had done Pepsi commercials, Sid Raymond, Peter Matz. Anyway, I won't go through that whole long story of finally getting to the commercial uh, taste that beats the others cold, Pepsi pours it on. It was the first line that the agency liked and the second line that the client liked. And then they said, Anne, put it all together. <laughs> now, did you did you write that line for them? No, I didn't write that line. I wrote all the music. I see. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. You know, I've been fortunate have so many amazing guests on this podcast. Famous musicians, actors, directors, photographers, and other creatives. I've been asked many times how I get such great guests. The answer is in several ways. Some contact me directly, some come through their manager or public relations firm, and many come from referrals by my other guests. Well, now I want to open up the process to you, my listeners. I'm sure that some of you know a famous or interesting or accomplished person, someone who has followed their dream to success and who would make a great guest on this podcast. If you know someone like this, I'm inviting you to contact me or have them contact me. Shoot me an email at Robert at followyourdreampodcast.com That's Robert at followyourdreampodcast.com and tell me who you've got. And if you haven't done so yet, 
please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, you must visit our website at followyourdreampodcast.com where you can listen to all of our episodes and much more. As always, I want to thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. You know what? We're talking about this, and this is as good a time as any to do the song fest portion. Okay. So we're going to start playing a little bit of the taste that beats the others cold. Pepsi pours it on. And we've got like a string of a couple of different bands or groups or artists that are playing it. Here come the four tops. Taste that beats the others cold. Pepsi pours it on. Here are the turtles. Linda Ronstadt and the Stone Pony. Taste that beats the others Pepsi pours it on. Taste that beats the others Union Gap. Why don't you tell us how that whole thing developed? Well, at that time, we had a rep and he just called up, you know, to whoever the manager for an artist was because we wanted the four tops. And they said yes. And we didn't pay a million dollars. It was like three grand or something they got paid. And they came in and, of course, they said, shall we bring our arranger with us? And they said, no, we've got one. Well, that one was me. I spent a lot of time listening to everybody's, each one of those artists' records so that I could put my song, Taste the Pizza, Others Cold, into their style. So in other words, the Four Tops comes into the studio. And uh, did they know the song at that point? Do you had to teach it to them or what? I got to teach it to them. All right. Well, they, did they come in kicking and screaming or, you know, saying, uh, why are we doing this? Or did they want to do it? No, they came up thinking like Wilson Pickett thing, thinking you ought to sing it like a jingle, like really white. And what it took to get these guys to say, no, we want what you do. And at the end of Wilson's one, there was a big yeah, you know, big screen kind of thing. And um, the guy from Pepsi said, we can't put that on the air. So don't worry, we've got an alternate ending, Walter. It's okay. We put that one. Uh, and you can hear it on the thing. It's, it, But each one of these, I had to hold a hand and get them into their real groove to do it. Had any of these acts done commercials before? Never. Was this brand new for them? Brand new. Oh, brand new. And unexpected. And I'm sure $3,000 or thereabouts was a decent payday, you know, back then for this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. I'm just curious, you know, when, when they when they go and they get, you know, a song by the Stones or somebody like that for these commercials, they must pay them, what, a couple of hundred thousand or something? God knows what. I don't know. I mean, now it's become that there are people whose business is just licensing. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a different world. Yeah, you don't hear any new music at all. Okay, so did you go on to do other commercials besides the Pepsi commercials? Oh, a whole lot. It did Revlon, and uh, we did a lot with 
a lot of different groups and then our the people that I used in New York that knew how to sing with that feel. In fact, that turned into my own group, Queen Anne's Lace. And I did a whole album. It was an album then of uh, those songs. I think I sent you. Um, We're going to play one of them in a moment. But, you know, I'm just thinking back to this era. There were a couple of songs that started out as commercials and they became pop hits. I'm thinking of the Alka-Seltzer commercial, for example. Um, whatever shape your stomach's in. You remember that? <laughs> no, I don't. You don't know, da 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 You know, that became a hit. Okay, it started out as a commercial. Then uh, Sid Raymond's Diet Pepsi. Dun, da, 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 da. That became a big hit, and actually was a real problem because the uh, agency didn't want that song out there when their commercial was on because it would use it up. <laughs> There's a big fight about that. It was a different world, but you know, what can you do? That's the way it was. And of course, there were so many jingle houses back in those days Yeah. whose, whose business was just writing these jingles. And I, a couple of friends of mine were involved in that business. It was a huge business for, I don't know, quite some time. And then it just vanished, okay? Because, you know, you don't have theme songs any longer on television. That used to be a, an, a, an adjacent kind of thing to the music you're talking about. Right. Every TV show had a theme song. Right. And there were musicians that were writing this stuff and recording it. Yeah. But those great theme songs, they stick with you, all right? You know, here it is 40, 50 years later. Everybody can sing the Flintstones. Flintstones. And some of the commercials I wrote uh, for Sheraton, uh, BBDO came to me <laughs> about 5.30 one evening and said, and we have to get a new thing for a um, melody for this telephone number. It's a Boston office's business, but they haven't been able to find one. Can you be in here tomorrow at 8.30? Oh. <laughs> and that was when I wrote 800-325-3535. Well, it became a famous telephone number. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Okay, let's go to the second thing that we're going to play here. This is, you know, you mentioned Queen Anne's Lace, and you sent me something, Sally Go Round the Roses. Sally, don't you go 
So tell me a little bit about that one. I just always loved that song. And so when I decided to do, I had this group that did all of the Pepsi commercials that weren't stars. And I decided I could, should really write something for all of them. And it was six of us, five guys and me. And the top guys are out there. And um, it was sort of like association or that or Hondells, that kind of feel. And so I just picked tunes and I have a whole CD of those. That And uh, Sally Go Round the Roses was just one of the tunes I love. You know, I always liked that song as well. Who wrote it? Do you remember? No, but I think Artie Butler did the chart on it. I'm not sure who wrote it. Okay. I'll have to look at that. All right. But, you know, your background and your orientation was much more in the jazz field, correct? I mean, you got into pop and all of that, but you were more of a jazz person at heart. Yeah. So the next thing we're going to play is a cut of yours live at the Jazz Bakery. It's I'm going to lay my heart on the line. Tell me about that. Well, that's a tune that I wrote actually a long time ago, but I always loved. And real honestly, there was a time where I decided because I was doing all of this stuff with with Carol King and those people, I learned I my hands would go to piano chords, jazz chords. So I got a guitar, and I think that's how I wrote "I'm Gonna Lay My Heart on the Line," which really turned into a jazz tune. Where was the Jazz Bakery located? Uh, California, out in L.A. Okay, so did you have a band? Did you tour? Did you do that kind of stuff? No, I just did a night out there with uh, Roger Kellaway, who's one of the great jazz pianists of all time, and my husband, Bob Kindred, tenor saxophone, and a drummer, Chuck Berghofer. And the funny thing is that I did it and didn't know that it was recorded in the house. And then I got it and... A few years later, I listened to it and said, son of a gun, this is good. And so I put it together as a CD and it got wonderful reviews. Oh, that's nice to hear. Okay, the uh, the last one we're going to play is We Three Kings from Bending Towards the Light. about that some years ago i was asked to write um, a christmas show and the jazz bending towards the light a jazz nativity is it and i wrote the, all of the music to some of the biblical and she brought forth her first one and so forth and all of the songs in it are either mine or 
known Christmas carols that lead the story on and one of Dave Brubeck's. And I knew Dave because when I went to Oberlin, I sang on the Brubeck at Oberlin concert there, the first one, and that started all the college concerts. And so I'd known Dave and said, called him and said, could I use your song in my show? But otherwise it's all my own stuff and my own arranging. And um, we've had everybody you can think of, Tito Puente, Lionel Hampton, Dave has been in it, and a lot of today's people. And we're doing it on December 18th here in New York, and it's done in several other cities too. Isn't that nice? You know, you mentioned Dave Brubeck, a name you don't hear too much anymore. Dave Brubeck and his band were one of the great jazz groups of the era. They had a, a an album named after their big hit, Take Five, mm-hmm. which was in 5-4 time, of course. And it was one of the few jazz songs that crossed over into kind of a popular music era. There really weren't that many jazz songs that crossed over, but Dave Brubeck and his band, that did cross over. And yeah. what a marvelous record. As I was growing as a musician, that was always one of my favorite albums. That was one of the greatest group. And I will tell you, their sons, Chris and Darius, they have a group now that's spectacular. And Chris Brubeck is one heck of an arranger. Interesting you mention him because way back in the day, when I was playing, I was living in Boston. In fact, I had a, a group that had a number of guys from New England Conservatory. And we played all around Boston. And one of the places we played was a joint date with uh, Dave Brubeck's sons. Oh, I still remember to this day. So that was a lot of fun. Now I'm sure that the places that we played in Boston don't exist any longer. (laughs) But that's a whole other story. All right. So what's in the future for Ann Phillips? Well, right now, you caught me in the middle of working on all the publicity for the, the Jazz Nativity this year. We're doing it in a spectacular uh, place, a church. We haven't done it for two years because of COVID. Otherwise, we've been doing it since 1985. Good for you. Uh, with all of these people and great band and great singers and so forth. And it's it's really a, um, a show. It's not a concert. It's a theater piece. And it really just, well, people love it and children love it and Actually, we're doing a children's project this year where you can sponsor a child. We did that some years ago, and we had about 400 kids that were from various organizations, Boys and Girls Club and stuff, be able to come see it. Yeah. If you want to introduce them to jazz, you better do it some way where they can really love it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a good way to do it. We have been speaking here with Ann Phillips. This has been a fascinating conversation. You take us back to the early days of rock and roll and how the whole thing really got started as a business. And back then, it wasn't as much of a business as it's become, but so interesting to hear all those stories. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, Anne. I loved it. And there's lots more stories if you ever want to have me again. (laughs) I'm sure. Now we're going to listen again to the song that I wrote that started the episode, and I said I was going to play it at the end. It's my song called Hey Jake. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. 
Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Shut